There is a strange digression in the middle of the narrative where Moshe is commanded to approach Paro. This is a Perik Vav and Shemot Pasuk Yud Gimel, and it says, Vayidaber Adonai al Moshe ve'el Aharon, Vayitzavim el Bnei Yisrael ve'el Paro Melech Mitzrayim, Lehotzi et Bnei Yisrael me'eretz Mitzrayim. So that translates to, and Hashem spoke to Moshe and Aaron, and he commanded them regarding the Jewish people and concerning Paro, the king of Egypt, to take the Jewish people out of the land of Egypt. Okay, that's all fine. It's a little funny of Pusuk, but something to analyze perhaps another time. But then the next Pusuk just reads, Ela Rashe Beit Avotam. These are the heads of the father's houses, and then from there, the Torah kind of meanders through Ruvain and all his descendants, Shimon and all his descendants, and finally we get to Levi and the branches of his descendants eventually arriving at the household of Amram and Yocheved, into which Miriam, Aharon, and Moshe are born. Then, before returning to the narrative of Hashem commanding Moshe to approach and address Paro, were confronted with a few out-of-place and really seemingly redundant uh, psukim. So they read as follows. This is Perik Vav Pasuk Chafav. Hu Aharon Umosha. They or he or that is Aharon and Moshe. Asher Amar Adonai Lahem. That Hashem said to them, Hotziu et b'nei Yisrael meret Mitzrayim. Altsivotam. To bring out the Jewish people from the land of Egypt uh, with their legions. Haim, they are, talking about Moshe and Aaron again, Hamidabrim el Paro Melech Mitzrayim, they are the ones who speak to Paro the king of Egypt, Lehotziet ben Yisrael Mitzrayim, to take the Jewish people out of Egypt, Hu Moshe the Aaron. They, or uh, what we're talking about here, is Moshe and Aaron. Okay, so. If the Torah listed all the tribes and descendants, that would be noteworthy. If it just listed Levi to Moshe and Aharon, that might be understandable. But a partial list of Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi only is really completely puzzling. The conclusion of the genealogical digression is also baffling. This is the 45th mention of Moshe and the 13th mention of Aharon so far in Shemot. We know who they are at this point what are we supposed to learn from this section of the Torah? And what's the structure supposed to teach us? So fortunately, Rav Hirsch helps address some of these questions. And he articulates two particular takeaways to this uh, narrative. So I'm going to read an excerpt here, and it's a little lengthy, but I think it's important to hear of Hirsch in his own words. He says, quote, now, it is of critical importance to present an exact list of their lineage and relations, so as to attest thereby for all time to come that their origin was ordinary and human, and that the nature of their being was ordinary and human. This quote-unquote certificate of origin is meant to negate in advance, and forevermore, any erroneous deification, any illusion of incarnation of deity in human form. It is meant to uphold this truth, Moshe, the greatest man of all time was just a man, and the position he attained before God was not beyond the reach of mortal human beings. The list of names is also meant to negate a second illusion, the opposite of the first and no less dangerous. For although the certificate of origin establishes as a fact the human nature of Moshe and Aharon, it might also have fostered the belief that everyone, without exception, is fit to become a prophet. 
A person who today is known as a complete idiot could tomorrow proclaim the word of God. God's spirit could suddenly descend upon an ignorant and uneducated person and teach him to speak in 70 languages. Indeed, this phenomenon of imagined or pretended prophecy is not uncommon in other circles. In their view, the more intellectually limited and empty-minded the prophet of today was yesterday, the more clearly the sudden transformation attests to a divine call. This dangerous illusion, too, is negated by the family register. True, Moshe and Aaron were men and nothing but men, but they were chosen. Had God wished simply to pick the first comer, there were other tribes, branches, houses. God, however, chooses the worthiest and most exemplary to be, to be his emissaries who do his bidding. Before he receives his call, the human being must attain the heights of human virtue. One is chosen only if he has matured on his own to the point that he has become worthy of being chosen. End quote. So Rav Hirsch derives two distinct ideas from this narrative. Firstly, it provides context for understanding that the greatest of Jewish leaders are nonetheless human. We recognize the divinely implanted potential in man, but we do not confuse it with divinity itself. Secondly, we learn that greatness is not random. Progress and development is the result of human initiative and effort combined with divinely orchestrated opportunity and responsibility. So Rav Hirsch beautifully explains why the genealogy is necessary and helps us understand the, really the orientation of this narrative. But there's one other problem that Rashi picks up on that requires a solution, and that's the change of order in Aaron and Moshe. So Rashi picks up that the verse first states that is Aharon and Moshe, who Aharon and Moshe, and then the same pasuk ends, who Moshe vi Aharon. So Rashi explains, Ilu shehuskru l'mala sheyalda yocheved Amram who Aharon and Moshe asher Amar v'chule. So basically the first part of the pasuk is talking about birth order. Yesh mekomot shemaktim Aharon l'Moshe, there's some places where Aaron precedes Moshe, and there's some places where Moshe precedes Aaron. Lomar to tell us that they are equally weighted to one another. This is a fascinating Rashi and somewhat troubling, because in what way were Moshe and Aaron equal? We know Moshe to be the greatest of all prophets. The pasuk in Devarim reads, V'lo kam navi od b'Yisrael k'Moshe asher yida'o Adonai panim el panim. And there was no prophet who arose among the Jewish people like Moshe, who knew Hashem face to face, so to speak. Again, the full explanation of that is for another time, but you can see uh, some discussion of it in the Rambam in Hilchot Yisodi HaTorah Perik Perik Zion Halacha uh, Vav, where he explains the different natures, different types of nevuah. But that again establishes the basic fact that Moshe is unique among the prophets. So they cannot be equal in terms of prophecy. Uh, another point, actually, Aaron and Miriam make this mistake and confuse the prophecy that they receive. And, and when they see Moshe act differently than them, they wonder, well, we're all prophets. What makes Moshe so special? And Hashem explains directly to them that that Moshe is unique and his position in the world is unique and his understanding of the world is unique and 
they should not confuse their prophecy with uh, with his prophecy. So the Malbim has a very interesting approach to addressing this issue, and he explains Achar Shehishlim Yehusam Omer Devarim that after we complete the lineage of Moshe, we find that these two brothers were sent for two things. One was to physically take the people out of Egypt, and the other was to help them with the, what you might call, spiritual exodus, that they should be separated from the abhorrent practices and the religion of the Egyptians. And the Malmim goes so far as to say that when it came to the political, the uh, physical exodus, Moshe was primary, when it, whereas when it came to the spiritual exodus, if you will, that Aaron was primary. So in summary, the Malmim indicates that Moshe and Aaron had different roles. Moshe's role was primary when it came to leading the physical exodus from Egypt, but when it came to the spiritual exodus, Aaron was primary and Moshe was in a supporting role. So it's not that their roles were identical, but both roles were equally essential. And so that, I think, is how the Mambim is really addressing this question. When Rashi quotes the Midrash, either the Tanchuma or, or Midrashir Hashim Rabbah, depending on uh, the exact source, when he says that they were equal, he's not talking about in terms of their prophetic level, but he is talking about the essential nature of their mission. Both had an essential role to play in the exodus from Egypt. Now, the Rav offers a related and perhaps more expansive view of Moshe and Aaron's dual roles. And this is an excerpt from an essay by Rev. Avraham are based in, in his book, Reflections of the Rav, which are summaries from a number of the Rav lectures. This one is titled, Engaging the Heart and Teaching the Mind. It's also quoted in the uh, Mesoros HaRav Chumash in a, a pretty similar uh, version. So I'm gonna uh, share an excerpt from this essay. Quote, a pattern of dual leadership seems to have prevailed during major periods of Jewish history. Both Moses and Aaron were teachers, but their methods and temperaments differed. The two major traditions of teaching may be called that of the King Malchus teacher and that of the Saint Kiddushah teacher. Moses was the prototype of the King teacher, and Aaron represented the Saint teacher. Both of them enlightened minds, molded characters, and propagated the Word of God. Both led their communities along righteous paths and made sacrifices for their welfare. Nevertheless, their methods, their approaches, and the media they employed were different. In terms of ultimate objectives, they were very close to each other, but their emphases varied. The king teacher addresses himself to the mind. He engages the intellect, analyzing, classifying, clarifying, and transmitting the details of halakha with precision. He teaches texts and conceptualized thinking, reconciling seeming contradictions and formulating underlying principles. Moses, Maimonides, the Gaon of Vilna, and Rav Chaim Soloveitchik reflect the king teacher par excellence. The saint teacher communicates with the heart. He tells the heart how to identify its own excited, accelerated beat with the Torah. To feel, not only to understand. He teaches man both loyalty to halacha and the art of cleansing the heart of vulgarity, inhumanity, unworthy sentiments, uncouth emotions, and selfish desires. He teaches how a triumph 
is to be celebrated when the Almighty has granted success and how to cope with sadness and grief. The saint teacher creates a society of intense personal piety and subliminal closeness to God. End quote. The Rav observes two sometimes distinct historical roles. And I'll quote again here, quote, the king teacher speaks to a select few, for not all are capable of being scholars. Not everyone is qualified to understand an abstract halachic or scientific concept, let alone contribute to it. Yet, one simply cannot convert a whole nation into scholars. By contrast, the saint teacher is a leader of the masses, for all Jews have hearts which can be set aflame. All Jews possess sensitive souls and seek God. End quote. The ivory tower academic and the skilled practitioner each contribute. We aim for both the intellectual and experiential elevation of the human personality. We must be sensitive to each imperative and cultivate teachers and leaders to shoulder these equally important responsibilities. The array of qualities and capacities necessary to lead effectively rarely reside in a single individual. But, to quote a final line of the essay, Jewish leadership is most effective when it combines the mind and the heart in the worship of God.